Welcome to The Kingstonian, a podcast that profiles individuals who are passionate about what they do for a living, about what organization they belong to, or simply passionate about the community they are a part of. Hello there and welcome. My name is Dave Cunningham. In this episode, we sit down with the Municipal Councillor for Trillium District here in the city. His name is Robert Kiley. So Robert, welcome to the program. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Now, you have, you were elected to City Council in 2018, but politics is not something new for you, and it goes all the way back to your days at Bay Ridge Secondary School, I've read. You got it. It runs in my blood for whatever reason. I didn't grow up in a political household, but my parents always encouraged me to follow my passion, and for whatever reason, since even middle school, when I first ran for uh, student council there, Politics has been in my blood. Now, after you finished high school, and at some point after you had gone to university, you decided to run provincially for the Green Party. And what prompted you to get involved and to try to get involved, if you will, in provincial politics? Yeah, so you're right. Um, High school as a head boy at Bay Ridge, then in university at Trent University, where I did my undergrad, I was involved in student government there. And one of my close friends, Eric Walton, was the federal Green Party candidate uh, for many elections, and I worked on his 2011 campaign. And while we didn't win that time, we enjoyed ourselves and found a really strong working relationship and thought that we're adding some important conversations to the political debate locally, like on climate change, affordable housing, and things we wanted to ensure had a voice uh, at the table. So uh, after the 2011 federal, in the fall, there was a 2011 provincial election, and it was Eric who suggested that I run. And to be honest with you, I didn't feel ready at that time, because while I had completed my undergrad and while I was in teacher's college and becoming a professional at that time, I thought that my role would be behind the scenes. But with a bit of encouragement from Eric and the team rallying around me, I put my hat in at that time. And kind of never looked back because after 2011, there was a 2014 provincial and I ran in that. And for the 2018 provincial election, I became the deputy leader of the Green Party of Ontario. Um, I had been on their shadow cabinet before that and worked with them to get policies like policies on living wage, on rights for transgender people and their families. So uh, a lot of background work in the Green Party propelled me to that role. And I had to think long and hard after not winning for a third time in 2018. And I had to ask, would my efforts best be spent continuing to push the envelope on certain policy conversations in the fourth place party in Queens Park, because the Greens elected our leader, Mike Schreiner? Or would it be better spent taking some of my values and some of the vision that I have for our community and applying at a local level and really stripping away the partisan stuff? Because I actually think the best idea in politics aren't tied to a particular party. I happen to be a part of one, but it really doesn't matter at the end of the day who comes up with a good idea. It's just that it's seen through for the betterment of people and planet. And I thought municipal politics probably is the best approach. And so I ran and was very gratefully elected. Now, a lot of people feel that one person cannot make a difference. Obviously, you don't agree with that particular philosophy. So what led you to believe that you personally could make a difference? Well, I think one person can make a difference in relation to other people and working within a team. I think that all of us contribute something different to our community. And if each person contributes their best self 
and each person brings their gifts and talents, then collectively we can make a big difference. So I think that individuals are important, but individuals in relation to the broader community. Now, when you talk about uh, the things that you're doing now, you are a teacher uh, in your other life when you're not a counselor. You are also involved or have been involved in various other nonprofit groups, and they seem to align with what your political beliefs are. Um, Do you see that as something that's prepared you for what you are doing now as a counselor? Yeah, very much so. So to give you two examples, one is I was for a short time the executive director of the Council on Aging, and that largely came out of my master's research. I did grad school at Queen's with Dr. David Walker, who was very instrumental in the provincial government's approach to aging in the last decade. And we together looked at the impact of casino gambling on seniors. And that was very relevant to our community because at that time we were facing a referendum of whether or not there should be a casino in Kingston. Mm -hmm. And my research at the end of the day said there are benefits and there are some things that are negative. So my personal perspective was if it's not a net positive for an older demographic, which Kingston is trending towards, we shouldn't promote it at this time especially because such a large part of casino revenues come from people who have, unfortunately, gambling addictions. Mm -hmm. Um, And I bring that up because that research helped me get a job at the Council of Aging, which allowed me to sit on city committees like the Age Friendly Committee and really see the value of small local changes that can make a huge impact on people's lives. And the example that I always give when I'm talking about the Age Friendly Committee is how long the crosswalk sign is on for people to be able to cross the road. So for people who are able-bodied or younger or just swift moving, they might think that the 20 seconds you see is plenty of time. But in reality, many people in our community actually struggle with that. And we needed to work with city staff to adopt age-friendly recommendations from the World Health Organization through the United Nations to become an age-friendly community to prolong the time that it takes for people to cross or that we allow for people to cross. So that was a really great prep for getting involved in municipal politics, taking some fairly big policy ideas and translating them down to be sensible on the ground implications. Mm-hmm. Now, you can sit on a committee and get some sense as to how city council works, but I would guess that it's not until you actually get sworn in as a councillor that you have a better sense as to what the job entails. Now, I could go and look at the Municipal Act of Ontario and get some sense as to what a city councillor is supposed to be doing, but what do you see as your role as a councillor? Yeah, great question. So two primary things. One is the allocation of resources. So that's with the, the bigger view of what's happening in Kingston, what's getting funded, what are we prioritizing, how are we taking people's hard-earned tax dollars and making sure that they go as far as they can. And then the second is how do I take the needs of my even more local community, being my district, we're neighbors, Dave, <laughs> as you know, um, and make sure that people feel like their voice is being heard at City Hall. Now, I do want to clarify that means sometimes I disagree with my residents and I might say something different. It's not as if the most number of emails that comes to my inbox on an issue wins at the end of the day, but it does mean that I listen and try to incorporate those perspectives into the issues that we're facing. And it's that dual role of balancing the larger community, all of the corporation of the city of Kingston and the very particular 
local needs and desires of residents in the districts that we represent. So those are the two things, funding and representation. What kind of breakdown do you have in your district when you compare residential to business? Do you have a sense of that? Yeah. Well, Trillium District, where I represent and where I live, is very unique because it's the heart of the former Kingston Township. Mm -hmm. And right abutting to residential neighborhoods, which are a mix of single-family homes, townhomes, and apartment buildings, right abutting those are industrial areas and commercial areas. So for listeners that are in the broader community or maybe have just visited Kingston, they're probably familiar with the Cataraqui Town Center or the Rio Can Center. That's in the middle of our district. And then on either side of those areas, we have, as I said, the residential uh, component. So we are, I don't know a percentage, but mm-hmm. truly when you look at other areas, downtown would be the closest rival to being a mixed urban community like we are out here. Now, is Centennial Drive, uh, that area along Taylor Kitt, is that part of your district? How far does your district go that way? Yeah, my, my eastern border is Centennial Drive, west over to Bay Ridge, up to Princess in the north and down to Bath in the south. So it's a big rectangle, and it's actually the highest number of people living in any district in the city. Now, apparently there are a lot of people about to move into that area behind the Rio Can, correct? Somebody right, said 1,000 yeah. houses are being built or something? So it's probably a thousand units, which would include single family homes. It's a tag art slash Tamarack construction project, Mm -hmm. uh, including three high rises with homestead and a new school. It's the first time ever in Ontario that the French Catholic and the French public board are collaborating to share a space, which is very exciting. Mm -hmm. And it's also going to be the home of extended care. So a retirement residence. And that's really indicative of what I mean by mixed use. It's, kind of everything that you would think happening in a city is happening out in this district. So I don't know for sure, and I haven't heard this in any official capacity, but I think it's okay to muse about. I would imagine at some point they're going to have to change the boundaries of the district because we'll have so many more people. And as I've already said, we have the most already. And it was only back in 2014 where they changed district boundaries to accommodate for some of these population fluxes. Um, So it's a very dynamic place to represent and, have lots of opinions expressed to me about what's happening. And I'm very grateful for that. (laughs) What sort of leads me to my next question is, what's the nature of the phone calls that you would get to the house from your constituents? Besides, when are you going to plow my street? Which I would think would be a traditional question. The truth is, more often than not, it's people that have concerns and who feel strongly that, their needs aren't being met, but that is actually what the heart of democracy is all about. And I really appreciate that because that allows me then to take that to senior city staff and say, Hey, my residents saying X, Y, and Z, how can we work to address that? So that's the representation side we were talking about earlier. And from time to time, I'll get also a very nice email just to say, good work. The city's on the right track. Um, But usually, and and rightly so it's people saying that they would like uh, a new approach or at very least to understand why we're doing whatever it may be. What you're doing, right. Mm-hmm. The councillor's job is, is listed as being a part-time job, is it not? Or is technically, it? yes. <laughs> technically, it is. So my question is, how many hours a week would you spend doing councillor-type things? So I did a spreadsheet recently um, for my wife because we're trying to find time for 
our, our relationship and all of this. And on a, on a council week, and by that I mean the first and third week of the month, because planning committee, which I'm on, um, some other committees and council happen on the first and third week of the month. They are usually around 50 hours a week. And then non-council weeks can be as low as 25. Um, and I would say my estimates were conservative, meaning I probably spend more than that time. So roughly 30 hours a week if you average between the two. Um, and then there are other council-related work that I didn't even count in. So for example, I'm part of something called the Climate Caucus, which is a group of local elected leaders from across the country trying to make cities the lead drivers on climate change. So if you add in a few hours a week for that, because I'm on their board, uh, the number just goes up. So I personally think being a counselor is a full-time job, and mm-hmm. I balance that kind of well, I hope, <laughs> as a supply teacher with the Limestone District School Board, but definitely a lot of work. And now you've got more time to do counselor work that because you're not teaching, I would guess. Correct. Right? Yeah, I'm on yeah. A furlough slash laid off because of the pandemic. That's right. Have your duties changed at all with the pandemic as a counselor? Sure. So our duties have changed. We've delegated some additional responsibility and essentially power to the chief administrative officer. And we've done that to allow her to respond to new provincial orders, new numbers from public health. And it sounds like a cliche because everyone's been saying it, but the situation really is rapidly evolving and meeting as a full council to make those decisions couldn't happen in the real time that we needed to. So we've entrusted her with some additional, additional rules and responsibilities. Now, when it comes to the relationship between city council and the chief medical officer for Frontenac, Lennox, and Addington uh, Health Unit, what's that relationship like? Obviously, it seems to be working given the number of cases that we've been able to keep a handle on. Mm -hmm. I would say it's very strong. We receive updates regularly from KFLNA Public Health. And one of the things Dr. Moore, who is the chief medical officer of health, promotes is something called the chain of protection. And it's that every person in our community, much like we were talking about earlier, actually, has a role to play in ensuring that we stay safe and that we stay diligent in keeping our numbers low in Kingston in the area. So we've had formal briefings from him coming before council where counselors can directly ask him questions. We have email updates. And of course, we have a very impressive live dashboard that even the public can access to see the data day by day as COVID continues to trend down in our area. Now, when it comes to the, the whole business of enforcing rules, now, most of us who are watching television, listening to the radio, or watching online to see various news stories, we are bombarded with, for instance, lately pictures of uh, the people gathering in the park in Toronto this past weekend, or some of the scenes from the U.S. where the doors have been opened and people are just ignoring the rules about social distancing. How does the political authority in a municipality deal with that? How do you try to, aside from just asking people to monitor their distance from someone else, how do you enforce those rules? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a bit of a tricky question because the truth is some of it is not enforceable. Some of it relies solely on clear communication from public health, which we have, and people's willingness to abide by that, which we don't always have. Thankfully, in our community, we've been proactive. So, for example, we opened up trails 
uh, earlier than some other places with very good markings around physical distancing, some parking spots in conservation authorities blocked off so people don't park by each other, clear signage to remind people. So we've put the right pieces in place to encourage good behavior here. And so far, we've generally seen it. Um, the scenes out of Toronto and the States especially are very disturbing uh, because we know that people will literally die because of that behavior. So there are some technicalities such that if the municipality declares a state of emergency, which we have, and then enacts certain provisions under that state of an emergency, it can be enforced by, by law. But more often than not, the recommendations from public health are just recommendations. Mm -hmm. But the point for me is they are our best source of information. We have really great medical knowledge in our community. And so far we've seen the fruit of listening to it. And I hope that alone will encourage people to continue to do so. When you are uh, monitoring statements coming out of Ottawa, when the prime minister gets in front of his podium or Doug Ford gets in front of his and talks about some of the measures that both levels are taking to make sure there's adequate compensation or money's made available to folks who are out of work or people who need subsidies for rent, those sorts of things. All of that has been important to those people who are impacted. My question is, as a taxpayer, and you are looking down the road a little bit, obviously this is doing something to the deficit, which is not preferred. Where does the municipality, I know that you published some information about changes to your financial plan with respect to some of the things you're not going to do right away and you're going to postpone those things. How do you deal with the financial fallout of something like this at the municipal level? Yeah, it's a really great question. And in a community where we haven't had any debts, the financial aspect is probably the lasting legacy here. Um, because we know that the city of Kingston between now and August, so between May and August, will lose about $4 million. Because even when you factor the fact that some of our services aren't costing the city right now, because they're not running like recreation centers, for example, we're still going to be in the hole that much further. So we do a few things. One is we look as much as possible to save as much money as we can. A small but significant example, I think, that shows that council just voted on no bonuses this year for non-unionized employees and also no cost of living increase for council. We want to practice what we preach. So we're looking for savings on the human resources side. Um, but also, to be frank, we're going to have to look at deferring projects. So you alluded to that in the question. There are a number of things that council has committed to in the strategic plan, which is our four-year vision for what our term will do, that we might not be able to do simply because we won't have the money. And unlike upper levels of government, or I like to call them other levels of government, we're not allowed to take on deficit. We can have debt for big infrastructure projects, for example, but operationally, we can't go into deficit. So we have to make hard decisions. At the current phase, all we've done is push projects about six months to a year off. But if COVID comes back, if there's a second wave, which is frankly likely, or if things stay locked down longer through this first wave, we might have to make even tougher decisions by outright canceling projects. But I'm hopeful we won't. Uh, for now, we're just deferring. When I was reading your bio that I found online, it talked about your passion for climate change, social justice, democratic reform, good jobs, 
And I'm looking at the impact that this pandemic hopefully will have on a positive, in a positive way with respect to how we operate and whether that's trying to figure out how to maintain social distancing on a regular basis. Or I guess the other big thing that a lot of people talk about is the business of working from home and, and how uh, that might continue going forward as people find that to be an efficient way of handling things. What are your viewpoints on most two particular items? Well, on maintaining social distancing, I think this is potentially one of the positives from COVID-19, and that is really reimagining how we build our city, quite literally. And that's what I love about municipal politics. We're talking about land use planning, where certain things go, how people move in and out of different places. And there's been a real push from many people in the community, including the business community, downtown businesses, to ensure that people are able to enter local shops in a way that maintains the safety of the shoppers and also of the employees. So I know that about a week ago now, Mayor Patterson said the city is seriously exploring shutting down one lane of Princess Street during the day to allow pedestrians and bikes to be up and down Princess Street. Um, and then during the weekday, that is. And then during the weekends, actually shutting down a chunk of Princess Street altogether. And I really applaud that. And I actually think we should go further and think about a whole area of downtown that is only accessible to non-motorized vehicles, unless it's obviously an emergency or someone is using a power scooter or wheelchair or something to that effect. Because as we see from mainly cities in Europe, but when people have that freedom to move and aren't crowded onto small sidewalks, A, obviously they're going to be much more prone to keep physical distancing, but B, they're going to enjoy themselves more. They're going to shop a bit more. They're going to go to restaurants a bit more and really support the local economy. So I think that's uh, a really potential positive thing that comes out of the pandemic is what you might call pedestrianization of both the urban core. And we could consider it in districts like mine in Trillium district where you have the potential for people to visit restaurants and you have the potential for people to be shopping in a way that puts the car second to the people that drive those cars. Can we consider shutting down a couple of lanes of Gardner's Road? <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> yeah, that would um, be interesting. Awesome. I mean, hey, if you look at some of uh, the other jurisdictions' responses to COVID, they've been shutting down traditionally car-centric places and really seeing a great vitality come from that in a way that's good for business as much as it is for people. So I think we have to have all options on the table and we'll, we'll try downtown. I know last council meeting as well, a delegation came. So a group of citizens came to promote something called quiet streets, which I know many of my residents would appreciate, especially around our public schools, getting people to really slow down. And I'm talking drastic speed reductions, not 50 or 60, but like 20 maybe, maybe even 10 in school zones to make these places more safe and really encourage kids to get out, ride their bike. And there's a double win there too, because as people get out and have the room to stay physically distanced, they actually increase their mental health as well as their physical health, which is always good when you're dealing with a global health emergency. And that's something that I found too, is just getting outside the house, even if it's only into your own backyard to, uh, you know, to breathe a little fresh air as opposed to the recycled air you breathe inside the house. We have come to the end of the program, Robert. That's uh, all the time we have for the show. And I do appreciate you taking the time to 
sit down and have a conversation with us and all the best moving forward. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And great premise of the show. I really appreciate it. Theme music for the program is Stasis Oasis, a tune written and performed by Kingston musician Tim Aylesworth. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about any of our episodes, please send a note to the Kingstonian Podcast Facebook page. This is Dave Cunningham from Kingston, Ontario. Thank you for listening. Until next time.